Well, where, where is the part that says sex of Christ? Uh, I know it's here somewhere. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> My name is Bob and I'm an alcoholic. Um, hi. Uh, I'm a member of the Happy Way group in Englewood, Colorado. Um, I didn't pick the name. Uh, does that sound funny? What? <laughs> Come over here. Maybe if I stand up here. <laughs> um, I'm reluctant to tell you that I'm a member of the Happy Way group, although I believe it's the best group in Colorado. Uh, it sounds like a whole lot of people on Thorazine. Uh, I have this feeling that I should stand up here and go, Hi! I just came into AA and I'm so happy. Well, I would prefer that it was called a beaten into a state of reasonableness group. Um, the Happy Way group in Englewood is a group that uh, that believes in following the directions, right by the numbers, and um, and that's what saved my life in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, you know, I'm pretty certain that doesn't save everyone's life, but it saved my life, so it's real important to me. Um, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous initially uh, in 1968 and just couldn't get it. Um, I used to go to AA meetings because I knew intuitively that that was where the solution was. But I just didn't know how to get to it. Now, uh, I had a couple of impediments to get over. One of them was I never went sober. Um, so I would go in there all hammered, and then, and then people would... Uh, I don't want to stand over here. Um, then people would come up and they would kind of stroke me and they would tell me everything was going to be all right and keep coming back and, and all that stuff and I'd go, uh-huh. Um, if I talk like, this is one of the first places I've, I've been doing this talking at conventions once a month for 20 years. Okay. And this is, this is one of the few times I get to go someplace where people sound like I do. Um, my forebears were all dairy farmers up the river here a ways in Wisconsin. And every once in a while, somebody will come to Denver and they'll just come back from South Dakota or someplace and they'll go, geez, Bob, there's a whole state full of people talk like you do up there. I used to go to these Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and they'd all stroke me and tell me it's going to be all right and I'd just sit there and be pitiful and then um, and then I'd get up and I'd feel a lot better and get drunk. And uh, I, I was really ambivalent about AA. I had two minds about Alcoholics Anonymous. One mind said, you really need to be there. 
and the other mind said, you're much too good to be there. And, and I would get in there, and the one that said, you're much too good to be here, would drive me out the door again. And see, there's a curious thing about Alcoholics Anonymous. If you, sit in Alco- if you stay in Alcoholics Anonymous sober long enough and you keep going through these spiritual exercises that we do that we call steps long enough, you're going to come to some conclusions. And one of those conclusions is based on a statement in the big book that talks about don't go help somebody who doesn't want help. Okay? And what it says is if they don't want help, go find someone that's desperate enough to have what you have to, to want what you have to offer. Okay? That's an odd statement. That indicates that people need to be desperate to do this. Why is that? You know why? Because they're asking us to do things we would not normally do. Okay? When we go through this process of recovery in the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, that is not a natural act for a drunk. So this whole business about being desperate works. When I came into Alcoholics Anonymous the last time, in 1973, I was desperate. I knew I was going to die. I would have done anything that they said. I had uh, I had gone to Alcoholics Anonymous off and on for five years. Never got sober. Never got sober for one week at a time. And uh, was living in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. And went to an AA meeting, and this old Irish guy decided he was going to be my sponsor because uh, he told me I needed one. And I was going, uh huh. And uh, who are you? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and he said, No, Bob, you need a sponsor, and I'm just the guy. And I went, That's good. And uh, and drank and went to meetings, drank and went to meetings, drank and went to meetings, and then called him up one night and said, His name was Leo. And I said, Leo, I'm not, I'm not really an alcoholic. Uh, I admit I drink pretty vigorously, but, um, but I'm not an alcoholic of the stripe that that you have in Alcoholics Anonymous, and and I truly wish you the best. Uh, and all the members of the Fond du Lac group, and give them my best also. And thank you for all your help. And then I figured it was the end of the conversation, and it pretty much was, because all he said was, we'll probably see you again. (laughs) Well, I didn't think it was going to happen quite so quick. Um, About three weeks later, uh, I had been on... um, uh, about a four-day run and drunk when my wife took my two sons and left. And I had gone to Chicago and um, had spent some time around Lake Geneva and and wound up back in Fond du Lac. And the first thing I remember was looking up. Uh, I was on the floor of my house and there were two members of Alcoholics Anonymous staring down at me. 
and I'm looking up, and Leo's one of them. <laughs> and I'm trying to figure out where I am and what the hell is going on. <laughs> and he looked at me, and he said, are you done? That's a very good question. Okay. I have to mention that the other guy was a guy named Dick Thompson, and he was dancing around me going, oh, my God, oh, my God, is he going to go into DTs? We better put something in him. Oh, my, does he look sick. Do we need to get him to a hospital? Oh, wow. If I would have had a gun, I would have shot the son of a bitch. Well, you know how it is when you're really sick and you got somebody barking in your ear. He took me over to Halfway House. Actually, it was named after a nun from Iowa named Sister Blandine. They took me to this Halfway House and sat me down in front of a priest. And the guy was just a guy that ran it. Now, you also got to know, I can tell you this stuff because you're from this part of the country. <laughs> I was a German Lutheran. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> it's like... Uh, they sat me down in front of this priest and he said are you an alcoholic and I said uh, yeah yeah I am and I knew that then and he said uh, is your life unmanageable and I said for God's sake two people just carried me in here <laughs> He, and he said, you done? <laughs> that's, that's a wonderful question. You know why? Don't go help somebody don't want to help. Okay? If they aren't done, you go, let me leave you a number. Okay? And, and write on there, Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and if you ever get so sick and tired of being as sick and tired as you are, Call me because I have a solution for you. Okay? That always works. I, you know, he said, are you done? And I didn't know. I don't know what the answer to that is. I mean, I'd been trying to get sober for five years, and I just didn't know the answer. I said, I hope so. And he said, uh, do you want what we have? And I'm thinking, this is a trick question. <laughs> Well, let's see if he's a priest. He probably doesn't have a girlfriend. Uh, so I'm not up for that. Um, yeah, you know what I told him? Yeah. You know why? Because I didn't know what he had. But I can guarantee you that whatever he had, it was better than what I had. Okay? Um, are you willing to go to any lengths to get it? Yeah. Well, um, they didn't have any treatment centers. And there was no place to go. I mean, they used to babysit you. So he said, we're going to take you home. And I said, all right. And, uh, and this guy took me home and he said, if you, uh, if you get in too much trouble, give me a call. I'll come over here and sit with you. Well, 
See, I don't know how you drank, but I know how I drank, and I drank scary. And I knew what was going to happen, because it happened every time I stopped. That's why I didn't stop. I knew that when they dropped me off there, if I didn't have anything to drink, things were going to start coming apart. And, and I didn't want to experience that again. The book talks about getting into a position with alcohol that is absolutely frightening and without hope. And that position is that you can't take another drink because it'll kill you. And I'm not talking about make you feel bad. I'm talking about making your heart stop. You take one more drink and it'll kill you. And if you don't take one more drink, it'll kill you. Well, what's left? See, and I'm sitting in that position, and, and the question then is, all right, so what? I mean, there's no hope here. Um, might as well just sit and wait for it. And so that's what I did. For the next 48 hours, I flopped around like a fish out of water doing DTs and hallucinations and all kinds of crazy junk. And I saw things coming out from under the refrigerator in my kitchen that you don't even see on Saturday morning cartoons. I saw ants bigger than this podium crawling out from underneath my refrigerator and I, I grabbed the refrigerator and picked it up by hugging it and moved it halfway across the kitchen and dropped it um, and then took like three cans of Raid. This is a little tiny kitchen and damn near asphyxiated myself. Um, I knew this, this priest said, do you believe in God? Before I left, he said, do you believe in God? And I said, no. And he said, then I suggest you go find one. And I said, you know, Father, I wouldn't even know where to look. And he said, what do you think you'd like God to be? And I said, well, I don't know. You know, I, I have a pretty checkered past. Um, um, I, I uh, lived with a lot of different families when I was growing up, and my dad was a real bad drunk. And, and uh, you know, I guess what I would like is I'd like him to be like a like a kind father. And he said, why don't you go think about that? See, and I didn't know what God was or whether he liked me or whether he was even interested or whether he's mad at me or I don't. And, and so all I could do was I'd sat there and tried to pray and, and I didn't know how he got his attention. So I prayed on my knees and I prayed standing up and I prayed laying down and I prayed in Old English and New English and, and I tried to do whatever I could do to get God's attention because I knew the game was up. Um, and I expected, I expected to die every minute of that 48 hours. I knew something was just going to seize up and that was going to be the end of the road. And, uh, and I was prepared for that, and it just didn't happen. Um, I didn't call anybody. I just stayed there. 
and they came and got me in about 72 hours. Came in and went, you know, it's like clear the smoke because he's still breathing. And, uh, and the guy sat down and told me that he had experienced what I had experienced and that he had gotten past it because, see, um, the doctors had been giving me Livrium and Valium and all kinds of stuff for years that just made that all work better. So I'd have four prescriptions, and, and as soon as I felt like I was going into DTs, I'd start dropping drugs to stop it, dropping tranquilizers, because it'll stop it right in its track. And I got to be a chemist, okay? I mean, that was my major in college anyway. So, um, so I knew how to stop the DTs. And it, doctors used to go, boy, you're nervous, Bob. And I'd go, uh-huh. And they'd go, well, we've got just the right thing for that. You know, it's good for you. Um, I, was, I was clear all that junk for about 72 hours. And, and things happened to me. I, would, I, went, I was the uh, marketing manager for one of the big paper mills in Wisconsin for Consolidated Papers for their packaging division. And I w- would go out and, and call on people when I was still all screwed up. And I was down in Port Washington one day at this really nice fish restaurant. And I'm, I'm sitting in there having lunch. And, uh, and all of a sudden, the side of my head really hurt. And I was looking at everybody's shoes. And I, I thought, what an insane perspective. Uh, and, and I had fainted and fallen out of my chair. And I called the doctor. And uh, up in Wisconsin Rapids, and I said, uh, I, ju- I just fainted right out of a chair. And he said, I'm not surprised. And I said, What the hell happens if if I'm driving a car and that happens? And he said, This is going to be isolated, Bob. Don't worry about it. And I said, He thinks <laughs> uh, I'd like some more librium too. Um, <laughs> Actually, I have the utmost respect for doctors, and doctors saved my life four and a half years ago when I was, I went into a coma four and a half years ago, and if it hadn't been for good doctors, I wouldn't be standing here, okay? He said, uh, Bob, your cardiovascular system thinks it's hooked up to somebody else. Uh, okay. The book says uh, we had to fully concede to ourselves, to our innermost selves, that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we're like other people, or presently may be, which means or ever will be, has to be smashed. Okay? I am truly not like other people. I'm a drunk. I'm like you. All right? And I do tragic and bizarre things. And I generally do them to the people that are closest to me. Do you know that, that drunks always hurt the people that are closest to them? You know why? Because they're close. <laughs> this is not rocket science. You're going to hang around with a drunk, just paint a bullseye on your forehead. <laughs> Now, well, I need to tell you that in, in my home group, 
we do the steps a lot, right? Uh, I go back through the steps about once a year based on the statement in the book that a business that takes no regular inventory is sure to fail, okay? I take regular inventories. And the reason why is that I can go through this whole process, and believe me, the process of inventory and amends and all that stuff is to take all that silly stuff out of your head, all right, and let God put some good stuff back in there because you can't fill a full cup, okay? And before I can become effective in carrying God's word, which is really what Alcoholics Anonymous is about, I could take all that silly shit out of my head, all right? And the only way I can do that is through this introspective process of the steps. Every time I go through the steps, I've got to ask myself that same question again. Are you really an alcoholic? Are you really? Maybe you've been deluding yourself for 25 years now, and you're just so damn stupid that you don't know any better. Okay? Uh, not likely. I have to ask myself the same questions. What was your behavior like? Did you experience the phenomenon of craving? which is central to alcoholism, okay? Did you experience that? Yeah. Take one drink, one another one. Absolutely. Did you do things that you would not normally have done? Did you go out of control? Did you do things to people that you loved that you would never consider doing today? Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it isn't about how... Yeah, I drank a fifth a day for decades. It isn't about that. It's about what happens when you do. I mean, you could drink alcohol like it was like water, and there are people, and I've known a bunch of them, who can drink like that, and they're not drunks. They just drink a lot. But if you go out of control, and you cannot take one drink without taking another drink, there is a major league problem going on there. Okay? I was always pretty much resigned to that. With a name like Olson, you know I'm just another one of them drunk Norwegians from Wisconsin, right? And people have been dying in my family from alcoholism for generations. And when I was 10 years old, and they were shifting me from family to family, if somebody got mean in the middle of it, they'd go, you're going to die drunk just like your old man. Well, how the hell can you tell that to a 10-year-old? You know, I have five sons, okay? I don't talk like that to them. I liked Harry Truman. He said the buck stops here. Well, the buck stops here. Okay? Um, if they ever find out that we have some sort of uh, physical propensity towards alcoholism that we inherit, fine, I really don't care. I just want to make sure that this program is here if they do. And that this program is here as it was intended that there isn't some psychobabble expert putting his thumbprint in the middle of this thing, and that Alcoholics Anonymous in its real form, which is a spiritual form, will be available to people who come here. Okay? Well, let me share something. Um, I've been doing this once a month for 20 years. This is the last one. This is the last one. And 
The reason why is because I've been teaching people to follow their intuitive thought, which is the, what the book describes as how God speaks to us. I've been teaching people how to do that for 20 years, and a year and a half ago, I was coming back from a convention, and my intuitive thought said, you're done. And I went home, and I sat down with my kids, and I said, Dad isn't going to go talk at those AA conventions anymore, and they cheered. I'm done. See, and this is the last time I'm going to tell you that if you follow the directions and you keep this as it was, you will continue to save millions of people's lives and you will get to watch the fellowship grow up around you. And the, and the book describes this as an experience you truly don't want to miss. All right? What what are they talking about? They're talking about, when they say fellowship, are they talking about 20 people in the same room? No. They're talking about the fellowship of the Spirit. And it talks about this bond that grows with people who experience going through the 12 steps and the bond that that creates between people. And that is the fellowship of the Spirit. It's not just a bunch of people hanging out in fear, which is what a lot of AA groups are. Okay? If you want to have more fun than you can conceive, and I would never even consider trying to sell this to you, if you want to go on a spiritual adventure that will absolutely delight you, follow the directions. Okay? And even when you don't want to, because, because introspection is not something that we really enjoy. Well, I already know what a jerk I am. I don't have to look at it. Look. Define it. Challenge your beliefs. Um, Leo sat me down after it. I've I got to tell you one thing. I went to, I was impotent. When I came in, stopped drinking, stopped doing everything else, too. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. Did I get off the subject? It's just like... <laughs> I was impotent. I'm going there and going, well, this is what sobriety is going to be like. Uh, show me the brandy bottle. I'm going to be, I felt awful. My masculinity was offended. I'd, and I'd go to these meetings, and all these guys would sit around there going, boy, it is fun going home now. <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, uh-huh. <laughs> so finally went to see the priest. <laughs> he and I turned out to be fishing buddies, okay? One of them said, Father... Um, I go downstairs to this meeting, to the men's meeting, and um, and they all talk about how much fun they're having with their wives and girlfriends. And and I'm impotent. And he went, uh huh. <laughs> and I said, well, uh, that shouldn't be that way, should it? And he went, yeah. A lot of people get impotent when they get sober. 
And I said, well, all those guys aren't. And he said, bullshit, half of them are lying. <laughs> oh, you mean somebody's lying at an AA meeting? Book says, if you're even willing to believe upon this simple cornerstone, a wonderfully effective spiritual structure can be built. If you're even willing to believe. If you just kind of sort of think maybe. Okay? Uh, and I still have to ask myself that question. Am I willing to believe? Yeah, that's the basis of my life today. Okay? Um, it's, it's curious because right about in there in the book starts talking about lack of power is our dilemma. It starts talking about power. It defines the power, that power which is God. Now, if you ever see anybody in an AA meeting that does one of these silly things about trees and doorknobs and stuff, uh, <laughs> ask them what planet they're from. Uh, it says that power which is God. All right? So, uh, you know, even if they don't like it, we, we used to say something 20 years ago, they go, I don't like this God stuff. And you go, goodbye. <laughs> and, uh, and the premise there was that if God drives you out, alcohol will drive you back. Okay? Um, I don't think the God that I have come to believe in um, is so angry or so bitter or so abrasive that people who had the same mindset that I had when I came in won't get a chance to revise that at some point. Okay? And, and you know, there's a, the chapter, part of what we're talking about right now is called We Agnostics. It's not called They Agnostics. Um, people come into Alcoholics Anonymous agnostic as somebody thinks there might be God, but doesn't have anything to do with them. Okay? An atheist, you know, doesn't believe there is one. Either one goes fine. That's what desperation is about. Okay, desperation is about something that they don't talk about anymore. Seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. Hopeless. Um, there's a funny thing there. It starts talking about power, and it says that power which is God, and then it says that we 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 find a willingness to believe. And, and right after that, it says that we felt new power flowing in. Okay? And, uh, and then it talks about two different kinds of people. It talks about people who make heavy going out of life, and it talks about the bedevilment, can't seem to be of real help to other people, prey to misery and depression, all that stuff. It talks about those people. Okay? And then it talks about this other group of people. And this other group of people, the book says, have power, peace, happiness, and a sense of direction. That's everything I ever wanted. Okay? And, it, and, and the, the single thing that differentiates these people that have power, peace, happiness, and a sense of direction from the people who make heavy going out of life is that these people with the power over here have God as the central fact in their lives. Let me give you, let me give you something to consider because I do a lot. 
if your life turns into heavy going. Think about that. Because when my life turns into heavy going, God is no longer the central fact in my life. And one of the easiest things I can do is start worshiping other things. Okay? Money, women, jobs, cars, houses, da-da. Okay? Position, power. It says... uh, Crushed by a self-imposed crisis, we could neither postpone nor evade. We had to fearlessly face the proposition that God either is or he isn't. He's either everything or he's nothing. What is your choice to be? Okay. Well, my crisis is self-imposed. I mean, nobody threw me down and poured liquor down my throat. Okay. It is self-imposed. I did it. I admit to it. But what is it? What's the crisis? The crisis isn't my alcoholism. The crisis is that I am suffering from a degenerative and fatal disease, and I can't stop. I do not have the power to stop my alcoholism, or I would have done it. So my self-imposed crisis is that I can't fix myself. I can't postpone it. And I can't say, give me three weeks off, I'm really sick. And I can't evade it. I, I can't say, well, wait a minute. I'm going to Iowa. Uh, leave the alcoholism in Colorado, right? Uh, it is me. I am it. Um, now, why do I have to face this proposition about God? Because if I suffer from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body, and I can't fix myself, and that book says, no human power can relieve our alcoholism. I can't fix me, and you can't fix me, so we better figure out who's going to fix me. What's the next line in the book? It says, here we are squarely confronted with the issue of faith. I bet. (laughs) If there is no God, this room would be empty. Um, About the time that uh, I was getting to the third step, I I went to work for the West Bend Company, got transferred to Denver. Um and got hooked into the 1975 International Conference. I was on the hospitality committee. And um, and there was a guy there named Mac Cheater that was uh, the speaker. He's dead now. He's from He was from uh, Winnipeg. And he was talking about a group in uh, Winnipeg called the Golden Slippers. And, uh, um, well... The reason why they call them the Golden Slippers is because nobody stayed sober. Um, and they were, uh, they were very concerned because um, they were dying. I mean, they, they, people were just sort of fading out there, and they were going out and 12-stepping their buddies, and then they'd go out and doing all that stuff. And uh, he said that they had 
come to a whole new conclusion. Thank you. Wow. This Iowa hospitality. Um, <laughs> yes. Well, this group just never got never got sober. So they didn't know what to do. Uh, they sat around trying to figure out what to do, and they finally came up with a conclusion, and that was that they weren't going to talk about the steps anymore. <laughs> and they weren't going to rationalize about the steps anymore, and they weren't going to intellectualize about the steps anymore. They were going to take a whole new tack, whole new direction uh, for their growth. Uh, they were going to do the steps. Oh, scary. <laughs> and the most amazing thing happened. They stayed sober. Okay? And it was, it was wonderful for me because Max Cheater brought that message to us and he talked about their group sitting down as a group and starting at the forward to the first edition to say, where it says to show others precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. Precisely. Well, um, you, tell me, has anybody in this room ever seen anyone in an AA meeting stand up when someone said they were dying from alcoholism and say, I can show you precisely how I recovered. You ever hear anybody do that? And if not, why not? You know what? We saw, we got 15 people in a group right after the 75 convention and sat down in a guy's basement, started at the forward to the first edition. Every time it said pray, we prayed. Every time it said write, we wrote. Every time it said make a decision, we made a decision. Every time said do anything, we did it. Um, I don't think anybody in that group ever drank. That's 1975. What's that, 23 years ago? That's a lot of people staying sober a long time. And there is a direct relationship between following these directions and staying sober. Okay? Um, we uh, um, we got to this part of part about third step, and my sponsor's going. Um, I want you to read about the actor here that's trying to run the whole show, and and he said, uh, Bob, you know, your alcoholism is uh, selfishness and self-centeredness, and I went, is that kind of a Zen thing? Um, and he said, no. No, that's what your alcoholism is. And I went, no, no, no. My alcoholism is I see a bottle of whiskey and I put it up and drink it until it's gone and then I go find another one. And he said, no, Bob, your, your disease is selfishness and self-centeredness. He showed me this whole business about driven by a hundred forms of fear. He showed me the business about the actor trying to run the whole show when that's not his job. And then he showed me the third step prayer and he said, now, read this to me. Tell me what it means to you. And then I'm going to have you come back in a week and take this if you want or don't. And he said, okay, 
tell me what it means. And I'm going, well, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou will. Um, uh, that it sounds like you're giving them kind of a blank check with your life, I think. Um, so that means that I don't decide what I do about my life anymore. And he said, no, it's not about apathy. This is about about following what you believe God's uh, direction is. And I said, okay. Uh, relieve me of the bondage itself that I may better do thy will. See, um, my bondage is that I, all I ever do is look at me. I don't look at you. I look at me. I can't see you because I'm so damn busy looking at me. See, and, and if I'm always looking at me, I'm going to spend my whole life pole vaulting over mouse turds. <laughs> Everything's a big deal. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help. Of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life, may I do thy will always. There's no amen on the end of that, by the way, for a good reason. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help. Bearing witness means being an example. Okay? Let people see that 25 years ago, I had no chance at life at all. That I was burned out, blown away, sitting on my hands, couldn't stop sweating, and didn't know what to say next. And that my chances of survival were somewhere under 5%. And look what God did. Well, it's not about me. It's about God will do that for anybody. Okay? So he said, uh, the reason why there's no amen on the end of that is because it goes all the way through the seventh step. So the, the third step's about making a decision. The old joke is if there's three frogs sitting on a log and two decide to jump off, how many are left on the log? Three. That's right. Very good. Okay, because deciding to do something and doing it are two different deals. All right? So the way I carry this decision forward is by doing the rest of the work. So he said, you look at that prayer, come back in a week and tell me what you want to do. And I said, okay. And I went back a week later and he said, well, and he told me I had to learn the prayer. I had to memorize it. And then I had to get on my knees and hold his hands and say the prayer. And I'm sitting there doing this thing about my masculinity again. It's like, I don't think so. Um, and I got back a week later and he said, what are you going to do? Uh, or he said, do you want to do this? And I said, no. And he said, does this mean you're not going to you're not going to take the third step? And I said, no, I just don't want to do it. And he said, why not? And I said, I don't want to give God that kind of power in my life. And he said, OK, uh, are you going to do it or aren't you? And I said, OK. And I, I got down on my knees and held his hands and said the prayer a minute. Book says we thought well before taking this step, knowing that we could at last abandon ourselves utterly to him. That's an interesting position, abandoning yourself utterly to something. That means you give up all hope of running the show yourself. Okay? And so I sat down and I did exactly that. And I got up and he was grinning at me. 
which I thought was totally inappropriate to the moment. Uh, and I said, what's funny? And he said, you are. <laughs> I thought it was a very solemn moment. Um, and I said, uh, what, tell me what's funny. And he said, you don't want to give God that kind of power in your life. And I said, that's correct. And he said, well, let me give you a clue. He said, God's got all the power anyway, Bob. <laughs> and I went, ha ha. And he said, he said uh, Bob, this is an exercise about who's God and who's the drunk. Okay? That's what that is. And he said, you bring your legal pad with you? And I went, uh-huh. And he said, all right, now you're going to start writing inventory. And I said, right now? And he went, uh-huh. Um, see, it says, next we launched out in a vigorous course of action, the first step of which was a house cleaning. And, and there is not a spot in there that says, take two months off, because that was really tough. <laughs> it just, I mean, where do you get a break? There are no breaks here, okay? Look. Here's the most compelling statement. You know, when people come into Alcoholics Anonymous, if I don't do anything more here than just make you think, good, right? People come into Alcoholics Anonymous, and the old timers in there will sit around and they'll go, "Don't worry about a thing, there, Charlie," um, because you got to let your mind clear up before you go after these steps. So. In three or four months, we'll begin on step one, when your head's cleared up a little bit. Okay. Now, let me tell you the most compelling statement in the whole big book. With all the earnestness at our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. You know when the very start is? First day through the door. Okay. We have people come into our group. We 12-step them. They come in our group, sit down, and go, I'm new. You go, great. Just take 30 minutes here, and one of the old-timers in our group will get up and go over and grab that new person and take them in the back room and say, here's what we have to offer you. These are the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and every benefit that you get in this program will arise from those 12 steps. If that's not what you had in mind, uh, we understand. If you choose to stay here, there will be a certain amount of pressure for you to begin this now. And here is exactly what you will be asked to do in those 12 steps. And then they get 30 minutes off the top about exactly what they're going to have to do. Now, why would you tell them that? What, you want them all to run away? Don't tell them about this God stuff. <laughs> well, 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 then why does the book say stress the spiritual feature freely? Oh, don't tell them that I have to do all those steps. Why not? You want to lie to them? If they're coming in here and they want recovery, and frankly, there's a lot of people coming into Alcoholics Anonymous who don't want recovery. If they want recovery, tell them what it is. And, and then what happens is that when you get that person, when you're guiding them through the steps as a sponsor, that person will never back up in the middle and say, you didn't tell me. 
Okay. Well, I started writing inventory, and I wrote down all these people that I was mad at, grudge list. And, and then I started writing down all these institutions that I was mad at, the police force and the courts and all that stuff. And then I got to principles, and I'm going, well, I see, what's that? <laughs> principles are beliefs. What I believed, I'm no good, never will be, I'll never amount to anything. I'm going to die in a gutter just like my dad. I'm stupid. Okay? Those were my principles. Those were the principles by which I lived my life and I had to put them out in the open and and see if they were real. And when you when you put these things in the light of day, with an objective look at those by asking yourself the questions that are in the inventory, you will see that they have no substance at all. And you know, it just doesn't work trying to believe in something that isn't there. Okay? So I wrote this whole thing out, came back to my sponsor and said, I'm done. And he said, no, you're not. And I said, why not? And he said, you haven't written a fear inventory. And I said, Don... You, you seem to have forgotten some things. I was a bill collector on the north side of Chicago. I was a 240-pound psychopath and kicking in people's doors and slamming them up against the wall, and I'm not afraid of anything. And he said, then the book must be wrong. <laughs> and I said, uh-huh. And he said, well, humor me. Let me ask you a couple of questions. And I said, all right. And he said, how about snakes? And I said, what kind of snakes? (laughs) He said, well, how about rattlesnakes? And I said, yeah. I mean, if you were in a little bit in a closet or something with one. And he said, write down snakes. How about spiders? And I said, you mean like black widows? And he said, yeah. And... uh, so well, you'd, you'd have to be a fool to want to get bit by one of those. And he said, write down spiders. How about failure? Oh, cheap shot. Yeah. Well, I mean, nobody ever told me I'd ever amount to anything. Well, then write down failure. How about inadequacy? Um, you know what? I never believed I was as good as anybody else, and that's one of the big reasons why I resented everybody. Um, and he said, well, write down uh, inadequacy. How about women? Whoa. Uh, well. Um, um, well, write down women. <laughs> How about children? No, no. You know those little tiny ones that they wrap up real tight, like they look like little mummies? I don't want to hold them because I'm always afraid I'm going to drop them. And he said, write down infants. So what about the police? And I said, you mean like when they're right behind you in a squad car? (laughs) And he said, yeah, I work. And I said, "Uh uh-huh. 
And he said, write down the police. How about the courts? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, when I was 17 years old, I was sentenced to two years at the Wapan State Penitentiary in Wisconsin for assault with a deadly weapon. And I figured I got a raw deal, and I didn't. And he said, write down the courts. And then there was a long silence, and he was looking at me, and he said, is there anything you're not afraid of? <laughs> and I said, I guess not. Uh, book says, fear is an evil and corroding thread. The fabric of our existence is shot through with it. Fear is evil. It is corroding. We spend enormous portions of our lives worrying about things that will never happen. And it does terrible things to us internally. And things like heart disease and cancer and all kinds of bad stuff arises out of being constantly in fear. It just disrupts our whole system. It is evil. I wrote down everything I was afraid of, came back, said, I'm done. He said, no, you're not. And I said, what's left? And he said, sex inventory. And I went, oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, for a guy that was impotent. Uh, oh, boy, I'm going to shine here. Uh, it's about relationships. It's about how we treat other people. It's about were we selfish or not. Did we unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? See, I was in like my seventh or eighth inventory. I was divorced after 22 years. Okay? And I was in this inventory, and, and those questions came up about did you unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? And I found out that was everything I knew about having a relationship. See, because my basic belief was that any, if any woman ever got a really good look at me, she'd be out of there faster than I could spit. And so I always kept them on their heels. Okay? And you can do that with jealousy, suspicion, and bitterness. You can, you can have them so discombobulated emotionally that they never get a good look at you. Now, I guarantee you that's not a good way to have a relationship. And I had met this woman that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with, and I knew that I was totally unprepared to have a relationship with anyone because I knew nothing about how to do that. And in my 11th step every day, I used to say, God, show me where to go. Oh, before I forget it, because I need to say this. It is my belief that the most powerful prayer in that book is, God, please remove my fear and show me what you would have me be. Not what you would have me do, what you would have me be. That'll do, that'll take you down roads you've never been on before. <laughs> Whoa. Uh, so, I, uh, I wrote down these relationships and I found out that I had never done anything that wasn't selfish. And in my 11th step, this woman's name kept coming up. I kept praying about it. And then finally, um, the people kept mentioning her to me and as a person that, that could guide you in relationships. And, and I went to see her, and she said, bring your girlfriend over here. And I said, okay. And I brought 
my girlfriend over whose name was Lori, and this woman sat down and she said, uh, Bob, is there anything about Lori you don't like? And I went, uh-huh. And she said, well, what was it? And I said, well, Lori said this one time that really hurt. And she said, Lori, did you say that? Lori went, no, I didn't. And she said, well, what did you say? And she said, well, I said this. And I jumped in there and said, that isn't what I heard. And she looked back at me and she said, well, Bob, is there anything else about Lori you don't like? And I went, uh-huh. And she said, what, what is it? And I said, well, she said that to me and that one really stung. And she looked at her and she said, Lori, uh, did you say that? And Lori said, no, I didn't. And uh, she said, what did you say? And she said, I, I said this. And I said, that isn't what I heard. And this woman looked at me and had the temerity to say, Bob, I think you have a hearing problem. (laughs) And I said, what are you telling me? And she said, I'm not telling you you need a hearing aid. I'm telling you that you hear what you think people are going to say. Oh, well, how do you get over that? And she said, ask people. I teach communications to convicts. You think God doesn't have a sense of humor? I went around for six months, somewhere between six months and a year, and every time I felt like I got zinged, I would stop the conversation and say, excuse me, this is what I heard you say. Is that what you said? In 99.9% of the time, they went, no, that's not what I said at all. Okay? At the end of this thing, I put the ticket to the grave stuff. You know, this is, we usually do something that has to do with sex that we're terribly embarrassed about and won't ever tell anybody. Okay? I mean, just a lot of people do that. None of you probably have, but I did. Um, you know what? Unless you're doing it with lasers in a spaceship, half the other people in this room have already done it. All right? Um, um, so I put all that stuff down, and I went back to my sponsor, and I said, all right, I'm ready to go. And I was absolutely convinced that if I told him everything about me, that he would get up and say, Bob, uh, um, please don't come here anymore. And don't tell anybody I'm your sponsor. And don't come anywhere near my wife. Um, and he's the only guy I ever let in. You need to know that I am a loner. I am not a person who seeks other people. Okay? I am a person who, who does not seek other people. I generally am do things by myself. And just, and you know what? I... I I'm tired of trying to explain that. <laughs> I mean, I just am that way. And uh, if I'm supposed to ch- ask change, I ask God to do that. But I'm not a very gregarious person, I guess is what I'm telling you. Um, and I, if this is the first guy I ever let in. And I knew he was going to hate me. And at the end of this thing, he got up and he hugged me. And he told me he loved me. And I understood and he told me he was delighted and he wanted to be buddies. 
and I could not believe it. Told me to go home do six and seven, taking the book down from the shelf. So I went home, put the book up on a shelf, and took it down. So I don't want to miss anything. Well, I told you we followed it. And it says you gotta you gotta review the first five proposals, the first five steps. Make sure you haven't made mortar without sand. You gotta make sure you what you've done so far is pretty much what you can do. Don't get hung up on that, okay? Because there's another line in the book that says more will be revealed to us. And so if you think you might have missed something, uh, you're probably going to have to write another inventory anyway. So I, I reviewed the first five steps. I saw all the stuff that we had talked about, which is what had kept me from the sunlight of the Spirit, and then used the seven-step prayer to ask God to take it away. Now, um, there is a part in that book that talks about right there about things that keep us from the sunlight of the Spirit. Okay? And it, it's about anger and resentment. And, and it's, a, it's a statement about people like you and I that drink again. Okay? And why we do. And it says, for harbor, when harboring such feelings, which are anger and resentment, when harboring such feelings, we shut ourselves off from the sunlight of the spirit, the insanity of alcohol returns, and we drink again. And for us, to drink is to die. You ever want to watch somebody die spiritually? Watch an alcoholic who is in recovery take the first drink. It's like their spirit fled. We made a list of all persons we'd harmed, became willing to make amends to them all. That's what it says in the book. The next line says, we did it when we took inventory. All right? Now, if you're using a Hazelden guide, <laughs> so we shouldn't get into this, right? <laughs> if it doesn't say Alcoholics Anonymous on it and it's about this program, it's bullshit. <laughs> Now, the only reason why I would say that that emphatically is I'm never going to do this again. <laughs> I don't think. I miss. Um, I made it. I went through my inventory and I wrote down all the people. You know, there were my resentments and everything. And I wrote down all these people that I thought I owned amends to, but I wasn't clear about it. So I went to my sponsor and I said, will you review this for me and tell me where I may be off base because I may have some emotional things going on here about some of these people which will prevent me from wanting to go make amends to them when I really owe them an amend. And so we reviewed this whole thing. And he told me who I ought to go see and everything. And got around to my dad who had had a stroke and a person who I had hated my whole life and a chronic alcoholic. And he said, what are you going to do about your dad? And I said, I don't know. I don't think I owe him an amend. I mean, he bailed when I was a kid, and he used to call up drunk all the time, and he was just, you know, I was a pretty violent guy. And he said, uh, didn't he call you on your birthday every year? And I said, yeah, but he's always so drunk, you, go, you couldn't tell what he was saying. You could just tell that it was him. 
and he said, um, how, how difficult do you think it is for a chronic, wet-brained, this is not an exaggeration, my dad had the first, the first blush of a wet brain. I mean, he sounded like he was punch drunk all the time. How difficult do you think it was for a guy who, who was a chronic alcoholic who drank every day of his life to pick March 31st out every year and call you for your birthday? Could you do that? And I went, I don't think so. And he said, do you know what kind of enormous willpower it would take for a, for a chronic drunk to call you every year in that condition? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, what'd you do? And I said, I hung up on him. And I, he said, why? And I said, because he's an alcoholic. And he said, you're an alcoholic. I hate that kind of logic. <laughs> and he said, yeah. he said, go make amends to him for holding him at arm's length your whole life. And I said... Jesus, Don, he's in the Grand Army home in King, Wisconsin. He's had a stroke. He's not supposed to be capable of any continuous thought. Do you want me to go out there and talk to someone whose brain doesn't work? And he went, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. And I said, what's the point? And he said, the point, Bob, is that you clean off your side of the street and this doesn't have anything to do with his side of the street and if you don't get in your car and go do that now and he dies, you will regret not having done that for the rest of your life. I went, gotcha. I don't, I understand. Got in the car, drove to Wisconsin. Went to the Grand Army home, this little old gray-haired man which is a long step from the tough guy that he was. And I walked into the room and they said, uh, they said, who are you looking for? And I said, a guy named Bob Olson. And um, they said, that's him over there in that wheelchair. And I went over and stood in front of him and he looked up at me and I said, I'm your son, Bob. And he got excited. And I said, I need to talk with you about some stuff. And I pushed his wheelchair into this little alcove and sat down in front of him. And I said, I'm an alcoholic. And he got very sad. And I said, but I found this program. And I don't have to drink anymore. And one of the ways that I don't have to drink anymore is by making amends to people that I have harmed and I have harmed you. And I regret it. And I am willing to do whatever is necessary to balance the books. When I told him that I didn't drink anymore, he became elated. And I knew he understood. Not very much long, not very long after that, he couldn't understand. And, and one day they called my uncle Leif and they said, Leif, uh, Robert um, has adult onset diabetes. Uh, he's lost the circulation in his feet and we're going to have to amputate his feet. And so my uncle Leif said, okay. 
and they amputated his feet. And a few months after that, they called him back and they said he's losing circulation in his extremities again. And we're going to have to amputate some more of him, which brings up this question. Do we uh, continue to take pieces off of him until that condition reaches the main part of his body where he will get gangrene and he'll die? And do you want to do that now or do you want to do that later? And it was my uncle's considered opinion, and I have never questioned it, that they allow my dad to die. He knew at some level that they did that. And he would sit in his wheelchair in the Grand Army home, and when anyone came close to him, he would scream. He couldn't speak. He would scream. And he would scream out of despair because at some level he knew that they were going to let him die and he had no say in the decision. And you see the four horsemen of alcoholism are terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair. And despair is the worst of them all. And that's the way he died. He died like a drunk. My dad had nine wives and nobody showed up. Okay? Uh, I owed a lot of money, paid that off. Um, um, made my amends and then one day I had one, one amend left that was to my Uncle Lafe that... Uh, um, was a couple thousand bucks that he had lent me at one point when I got sober. And I, I was ready to pay him back and he had the money. And they came out to Denver from Wisconsin and, and, uh, and I, was, I couldn't wait for him to get there so I could give him the money and be done with my amends. And my sponsor came up and he said, what if he doesn't want it? And I said, I'm going to give it to him anyway. And he said, why would you not allow him the pleasure of making you a gift if that's what he does? And I said, I, don't ask me these questions anymore. <laughs> My Uncle Leif came out there and he said, Bob, um, you said you wanted to pay me back that money. You owed me a couple thousand bucks. And I said, yeah. And he said, will you put that on a down payment as a down payment on a house? I know you've never owned a house in your life. And I'd like you to own one, and that'll be my gift to you. This is the first time I ever learned how to say thank you. Ken's about watching. You know, we found out that the basis of our alcoholism is selfishness and dishonesty and resentment and fear. And, and the, the instructions in step 10 say, continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. When you see it, ask God it wants to remove it. Talk to someone about it. If you make amends, if, you, if you've harmed someone, make amends. And then resolutely turn your thoughts to someone you can help. Those are the instructions for the 10th step. And, and, and the trick, the spiritual twist in there is learning how to turn our thoughts to someone you, we can help. If you read Emmett Fox, he talks about turning your thoughts to God. Bill Wilson says, who is a big fan of Emmett Fox, turn your thoughts to someone you can help because we are in a fellowship of people who may need help. Okay? And why should I do that? 
because selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear are all those things where I'm looking at myself again and can't see you. And if I can learn this spiritual exercise where I can turn my thoughts out to you, to someone I can help, I am no longer thinking about me, and I am no longer in danger of drinking. Eleven's about discipline. I do not believe personally that 5% of the people in Alcoholics Anonymous follow the directions in the 11th step. They aren't that tough, but I don't think that we like discipline. And it talks about when we get up in the morning, how we say, God, please keep my day free from selfish, self-pity, dishonest, and self-seeking motives. And then it says we plan our day, and it God says, God, show me all through the day what my next step is to be in. Please give me whatever I need to take care of the problems. Okay? And I, in there, I pray for people, and I say the third step prayer and the seventh step prayer, and the prayer about God remove my fear and show me what you would have me be. And it says, when I go to bed at night, I review my day and see whether I put more into it than I took out of it, because we are a fellowship of takers. If you want to have a really happy day sometime, go around and spend your whole day doing just things for other people and see if you don't feel better at the end of the day. And it's about where is our focus and can we really be of help to God and our fellows. It says as we go through the day, we pause when agitated or doubtful and ask for the right thought or action. These are living skills. When somebody gets in my face, I work with convicts. I work with youth offenders. I work with a tough bunch of people. And they are, they are there because they are antisocial in nature. And so somebody gets in my face and the first thing I think about is pausing when agitated or doubtful and asking for the right thought or action, which means that you can mentally step back one step and say, God... Show me what's going on here. Okay? And it says that I have to maintain attitudes, and the attitudes are, Thy will not mine be done, and I'm not running the show anymore. Okay? This isn't my deal, it's God's deal. Twelve's about carrying the message, but it's also about practicing the principles. And I believe that practicing the principles in all our affairs is the hardest part of this program. How can I take the vision of God's will into every single thing I do all day? Well, I work with a lot of people. And uh, I have a certain reputation. And they tell some of these people, you better get your shit together or you're going to wind up with Bob Olson as a sponsor. I want the psychopaths. I understand them. I don't care how big and ugly and mean and abrasive and all the rest that is. If they're drunks, I know where they are inside. I know what's going on in their head. Okay. And the only reason why I know that is because I've been looking at what's inside an alcoholic's head for almost 25 years now. I have... uh, I have five sons. They're uh, 30, 
35-29-9, and I have six-year-old twins. <laughs> and the reason why I'm not going to do this anymore is because my kids want me to stay home. Okay? In, a, in the spirit of rotation, um, I, it's 20, 20 years, it's somebody else's turn, for me anyway. Um, and I have the utmost respect for people who continue to do this. Uh, to go out and speak to conventions because you need to know that people who do this move away from their families on weekends and and um, and are subject to all kinds of, of inconveniences, both physical and mental, right? So when you invite people to your conventions, treat them well because they really are going out of their way to come and talk with you and try and carry a message that will be beneficial, okay? Uh, and I don't say that for me. I say that for the other people who are going to do this. Um, here's, here's one last thing that I want you to see. Okay? If you can't get spiritually centered in a meeting, if you just don't get with it in a meeting and you feel like you've been there but you didn't hear anything, think about this. At the end of almost every Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, we say the Lord's Prayer. And there is, a, there is a segment of that prayer which will give people like you and I perspective about the truth in life. And this is the part. For thine is the kingdom. That means all the stuff belongs to God. All the other people, all the money, all the buildings, all the jobs, everything belongs to God and when it somehow is in our care we practice this spiritual exercise called um, what's it called when you take care of stuff um, huh? stewardship we practice stewardship which is about taking care of God's stuff okay for thine is the kingdom all those other all the other people all the stuff belongs to God in the power. I have no power. This is about finding power, but it's God's power. And if I try and usurp that power in some manner and use it for my own designs and plans, I will drink. Because for thine is the power and the glory. You know what? We can go out and do all this stuff and help other drunks, but the glory truly belongs to God. We're just drunks. Okay? Thanks.